I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Well, today I'd like to talk about children in worship and recommend a resource to you uh, involving Christians in a post-Christian culture. But first, I want to continue our look at Psalm 137, from which the title of this podcast derives its name. In the last episode, we discussed the relevance of this psalm for us today, specifically because the New Testament often describes the church's situation in this present age by referring to Israel in exile by way of analogy. Babylon being often used to describe the enemies of God, Zion describing our home in heaven, and here we are on earth, distant from our heavenly home, seeking to serve the Lord and worship him in exile. And yet even with that backdrop, we might still wonder, is the church's situation really as bad as Psalm 137? I mean, certainly our culture doesn't seem nearly as bad as Babylon. Do do we really need to separate ourselves completely from those around us and retain a completely distinct identity like Israel did in exile? But even that really for Israel isn't exactly the full picture. Consider, for example, what the prophet Jeremiah commanded the people as they were being taken off into exile in Babylon. This is Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 4. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is the message from the Lord specifically to these exiles. Here's what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then listen to this. This is remarkable. Jeremiah says, delivering the word of the Lord to people in exile, in verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's remarkable. God did not expect his people, even in exile, to remain completely and utterly distinct from their captors in every respect. In fact, they were supposed to build houses and plant gardens and get married and have children, and they were even supposed to seek the welfare of Babylon. We can see this kind of thing exemplified with with the story of Daniel. Daniel refused to stop praying to Yahweh. He wouldn't pray to the king. He wouldn't eat meat that was associated with pagan worship. So there were necessities of remaining distinct in some key ways that we'll focus on in a moment. But Daniel was willing to allow himself to be educated in the literature and language of Babylon. He even served in political leadership, as did others of the people of Israel. So considering Jeremiah's instructions and Daniel's example, Why is the psalmist so distraught in Psalm 137? Well, remember the primary focus of this psalm. The emphasis here is not on building houses and planting gardens or education or political involvement. Remember why they are by the rivers of Babylon. The specific focus of Psalm 137 is worship. You see, when Israel lived in their land and existed as a theocracy, worship and culture were perfectly intertwined. But now that they are in exile in a foreign land, there is a strong antithesis 
between their worship and pagan worship. There is absolutely nothing in common between true worship and false worship. And the pagans are actually hostile toward the worship of Yahweh, which we see in Psalm 137. But on the other hand, there is commonality in some cases between the everyday life of God's people and the everyday life of the Babylonians. Things like building houses and planting gardens and marriage and family and governing and literature and education. So how can this be so? Well, first, because all people are made in the image of God. Even unbelieving pagans still have God's image. That image has been marred by sin, but it's still there. So even unbelievers can do relatively good things, not to earn salvific merit, but the acts of unbelievers, because of the image of God, sometimes can be good. They can build structurally sound houses. They can plant fruitful gardens. I mean, the hanging gardens of Babylon are one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Even unbelievers can devise successful political systems. They can produce worthy art. They can teach things that are true. Not always, but sometimes. And even more than that, unbelievers can do sometimes worthy things, not only because of the image of God, but also because of God's common grace. The Bible teaches that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He he shows general grace even to unbelieving people such that they can be successful in regular earthly endeavors. And so in those kinds of activities, when unbelievers do things that are consistent with the character and law of God because of his image still in them and because of his common grace, when that happens... God's people can stand alongside unbelieving people, participating in and contributing to society. And in fact, as we saw in Jeremiah's command, God actually commands his people to seek the welfare of the city and pray on its behalf. Why? Because since they are living as exiles in this land, its welfare is their welfare. There often is commonality between the everyday lives of God's people and the everyday lives of pagans in those kinds of respects. But here's the important point that we derive from Psalm 137. When it comes to worship, there is no such commonality. There is a strict antithesis between the belief systems and worship practices of God's people and the belief systems and worship practices of pagan people. And that is what is specifically in view in Psalm 137. Its focus is not on everyday life. Its focus is gathering by the rivers for worship. The songs of Zion in Psalm 137 are not the everyday folk songs of the people. They are the songs of corporate worship in the temple. The longing for Jerusalem is not just a a longing for the city, but it's a longing for the center of worship. And the same is true for the New Testament church. Jesus was very clear, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Why? Because the welfare of the city is also our welfare. A healthy government that protects the innocent, that punishes injustice, is a good thing, even if that government is pagan. If you remember, in the context of teaching Christians how to live as sojourners and exiles, Peter, in chapter 2 of his first epistle, specifically says that we should submit to earthly authorities and even honor them. Why? Because the welfare of the city is also our welfare. Government was instituted by God himself. And inasmuch as governing officials rule with equity and justice, 
because of the image of God, because of God's common grace, they are doing exactly what God intends for them to do. And just like Jeremiah, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 commands that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You see, there is a very real sense in which we Christians, very similar to Israel in exile, are dual citizens. We are first and foremost citizens of a future city, the heavenly Jerusalem, where the presence of God dwells, where he is worshipped in truth and purity. But we are also citizens of the present earthly city. And in that respect, we contribute to society. We submit to and pray for governmental authorities. And we participate in various aspects of cultural endeavors when those cultural endeavors are consistent with the character and law of God. But the important reality that we must recognize and that is highlighted in Psalm 137 is this. While we, like Israel, may legitimately build houses and plant gardens and participate in the political process and enjoy the literature and education of of this foreign land in which we are exiles, our worship must remain distinct. We, like Israel, have to recognize ourselves in a situation in which true worship will always be at odds with the prevailing beliefs and values of the world. True worship will always be mocked and maligned by unbelieving people. True worship will always be countercultural to pagan worship. And so there is commonality with regard to everyday aspects of life, but there is a strong antithesis when it comes to matters of belief and value and worship. And that is one of the central lessons that we must take as Christians living in a post-Christian culture from Psalm 137. All right, in a moment, I want to highlight a resource, a book that deals exactly with this issue of worship in exile. But first, I want to let you know about a conference that is coming up on October 1st on the beautiful grounds of Northland Camp and Conference Center in northern Wisconsin. Each speaker will be highlighting principles from 1 Corinthians regarding what it means to love God and minister to his people in this present age. Michael Riley will present Not With Lofty Speech or Wisdom from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Steve Thomas will address Our Celebrity Culture from chapter 3. Jason Parker will present The Body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the Body from chapters 6 and 7. Ryan Martin will focus on what becoming all things to all men in chapter 9 really means. I will discuss biblical worship from chapter 14, and Michael Harding will present spiritual dangers in light of the simplicity of the gospel from chapter 16. So we invite you to join us on October 1st for Knowing, Loving, Ministering, the Substance of Conservative Christianity. For more information, visit religiousaffections.org slash KLM19. Well, I want to highlight a book that I wrote a couple of years ago that specifically addresses the issue of worship in a post-Christian culture. And it shares a title with this podcast, By the Waters of Babylon, Worship in a Post-Christian Culture, published by Kriegel in 2015. First, in the book, I demonstrate that although the New Testament doesn't speak of culture per se, the idea of behavior quite closely in the New Testament resembles 
the modern definition of culture taken on its own merits. And so while the standard definition of culture used today might be accepted in Christian discourse, the implications and applications that are typical to missional discussions have some problems. Culture, as defined by behavior, is clearly not neutral. All human behavior is moral. And presenting this reorientation with regard to culture and contextualization sets the stage in the book for what I believe to be a more biblical understanding of worship and mission and their relationship to one another. I explore the relationship between worship and mission by defining worship biblically. I argue that the basic elements of worship, including communion in God's presence and sanctuary and priests and atonement, were instituted in the creation fall events, and they permeate the storyline of Scripture, and they culminate in the gospel of Jesus Christ, leading to a definition of worship as drawing near in communion with God through Christ by faith. And that understanding of worship reveals the important connection between Christian worship and the gospel. Redemption in Christ enables people to worship. And on that basis, I discuss the significance of corporate worship in particular. I argue that scripture presents corporate worship as a sacred event in which the gospel is publicly acted out in order to strengthen the faith of believers and proclaim the gospel to unbelievers who might be attending the service. And so with that entire definition and understanding in mind, I explore the issue of cultural forms within the context of corporate worship. I argue in the book that since aesthetic form shapes content, form is essential to the content itself. And so as the church seeks to communicate God's truth in corporate worship for the sake of making disciples and nurturing worshipers, we must ascertain which cultural forms best express and support that truth. And the best way to accomplish that objectively, I argue in the book, is to rely on the authority of Scripture not only in articulating doctrine in propositions, but also by the way in which that doctrine is expressed aesthetically. So this leads then to the primary argument of the book, and that is that the word of God should regulate corporate worship in its doctrinal content, in its liturgical elements, and the cultural forms used to express that doctrine in the liturgical context. So I present three primary arguments in favor of the regulative principle of worship, including the sufficiency of Scripture, the fact that in Scripture God rejects worship that he has not prescribed, and the limits of church authority on the free consciences of God's people. And I conclude by extending the typical discussions of the regulative principle to cultural forms in worship, taking into consideration the earlier discussion of the authority of aesthetic form in Scripture. And so the book argues that the most missional worship is that which seeks to glorify God in making disciple worshipers by communicating God's truth through the use of appropriate cultural forms that are regulated by Scripture. So I hope you'll take a look at the book. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are sold by the Waters of Babylon, Worship in a Post-Christian Culture, published by Kriegel. And it's my prayer that the book will be a help in Christians today thinking through this important issue of worship in a post-Christian culture. Well, I want to conclude this episode by switching gears a little bit, but addressing a topic that I believe to be of great importance to the church today. When our Lord was on earth, he invited the little children to come to him. Those words 
perhaps sounded strange to the ears of the apostles. He was trying to teach the people. They thought the children were simply distractions. And yet he said, let the little children come to me. And that day on that hillside in Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, welcomed little children into his arms. And in so doing, he provided a really stunning countercultural picture of his perspective regarding children. Jesus said, whoever receives one such child receives me. And yet, I think this perspective has perhaps been somewhat lost among Christ's own people today. Today, many followers of Jesus copy not his example, but the example of his disciples, who turned away the children lest they distract the adults from hearing Christ's teaching. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think the disciples were malicious in their action. Their motive was that they wanted the adults in the crowd to be impacted by Jesus' teaching. But the disciples were simply adopting, I believe, from their culture, the default perspective regarding children. And I think the same may have happened for many Christians today. There there, there are a couple of, of ways in which Christians today follow the disciples' example instead of Christ's. The first concerns corporate worship. I mean, consider the typical children's ministry philosophy of many churches today. From the time our children are born, we segregate them from the quote-unquote adult worship of the church into their own age-segregated groups. Our motivation often appears good. We want them to learn about the Bible at a level that is appropriate for their ages. And then we give them their music separate from quote-unquote adult music. And again, our motivation appears good. We want them to sing music that is immediately accessible to them at their age. And then we provide for them activities and crafts and games and object lessons and visual aids and puppet shows and magic tricks, all all with a Christian theme. It is church after all. And our goal is to keep them occupied. Our motivation might appear noble. We don't want our children to think church is boring. We don't want the adults to be distracted in the service. But then when our children progress to teenagers, we give them a new gathering separate from adult services and their own music different from adult music and activities to keep their interest. We, we don't want to lose our young people. We've read all the statistics. And so we do whatever we can to keep them engaged and interested in church. But then one day, we expect them to grow up. We expect them to know how to worship. We expect them to appreciate the rich heritage of worship that we have. We expect them to take the baton of cultivating biblical worship and, and Christianity into the future. But we have not taught our children how to worship. And so in many ways, we have created the generation gap in our churches. We bemoan the fact that children who grow up in our churches are leaving at an alarming rate once they reach college. And we complain that even Christian young people are characterized by worldliness and captivated by entertainment. But perhaps we have contributed to these problems ourselves. And what is perhaps even more concerning is that not only do many children never worship with their parents on Sundays, but they also do not worship with their parents the other six days of the week. Many Christian parents today have grown accustomed to passing off the spiritual training of their children to quote-unquote experts, children's ministers and Sunday school teachers, instead of recognizing our God-given responsibility as parents to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Our lives are so busy with otherwise good things and helpful things that we don't have the time for daily family worship, let alone even to eat with our families. But scripture is clear. 
Children are a blessing from God. Yet while children are certainly gifts from God, they are gifts that come with with a responsibility. Children are cute and cuddly, but they are also sinners in need of salvation. And not only that, they're immature, they're undeveloped intellectually, socially, and spiritually. Proverbs 22.15 says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And although the metaphor of a child is sometimes used in Scripture to picture something positive, often in the Bible, children are characterized as fickle and easily manipulated and unable to digest what is good and simple-minded. And so it is our responsibility to carefully guide children, to grow them into mature adult Christians. And I truly believe that the way that we can accomplish that goal is first and foremost— by teaching and training our children each and every day of the week, by, by engaging in family worship together at home, but also by welcoming the little children into our corporate worship. Let the little children come. Well, thank you for listening once again to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me at Twitter on twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Mm-hmm.